Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome as 2022 fades from view. We here at Newsbusters can state for the record that our crew is not mourning the new CNN dictate that their so-called talent cannot get inebriated live on national television this year. As if Don Lemon sounds cogent without a couple of vodka shots. Joining us to review the year in national journalism and media bias is our own Curtis Hauk, managing editor of Newsbusters. Hey, hey, folks. Uh, happy early New Year. As <laughs> Berman likes, Chris Berman likes to say, let's be among the first to wish you a happy New Year. Now, Curtis, perhaps you recall that four years ago in this time period, our own Nick Fondacaro was suspended from Twitter for suggesting Don Lemon was salivating for Nancy Pelosi to resume her job as Speaker of the House. Uh, <laughs> this despite the fact that Brooke Baldwin at the time tweeted, thanks to all of y'all who watched, tweeted, and got hashtag drunk Don Lemon trending another year. Right. Well, what happened was he used the word stupor. Oh. He was on a drunken stupor. It, when he was talking about describing all those things, and apparently in other parts across the pond, stupor is sexual oh. in nature. Oh. It's sexual innuendo or insult or some sort of thing. So Twitter suspended him for being discriminatory, derogatory towards Le Mans. Well... I don't think Nick Fondacaro is always quite in touch with the British slang of the day. No, no. Maybe our old guy Whitlock. Yeah, maybe our old guy Whitlock was. But yes, we are. <sighs> yeah, I don't know how to feel about this because, you know, Nick had some real bangers over the years uh, for us. You know, Randy Kushke, Randy K. Yes. Went on a, bon went on a uh, pot bus and had a bong, you know, gas mask with her. You know, they'd send out the likes of Ana Cabrera and other Gary Tuckman, a few others. They'd put them on cruise ships in the Caribbean. You know, there was one year, yes, where Brooke and Don went to Nashville and or New Orleans and Don got a tattoo. In 2020, <laughs> you had Brooke and Don at one of his homes on Long Island in fancy uh, matching pajamas together. Oh, geez. It was, it was very strange. I am not a fan. Now, some could say, but hey... Don't you enjoy blogging this nonsense? And the answer is no, not I mean, really. It, I mean, you all the readers do, apparently. So that's why we did it. I mean, and of course, last year we had uh, Andy Cohen going off about Bill de Blasio being a terrible person. <laughs> Just fix this city. He went on this entire thing about how terrible New York City was and you couldn't go anywhere and it was crime infested. And you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, he had a few. That might be the actual inspiration, but... It's I've always been the, the type of fussy person who's like, it's not professional. It's one thing if you want to do, hey, we're CNN, but we're a party news network this night. That's one thing. It's another thing just to get drunk and you don't know what anybody's going to say. Right. That's how CNN's convention coverage was. And I believe 2016 uh, in Philadelphia, they took over uh, Xfinity Live, I think, uh, where the old Spectrum used to be, I think, or somewhere nearby in the stadium complex and made it the CNN grill. Oh, yeah. They would have their coverage, but there but there would be 
and they would just be talking as is normally. And then there would be people in the background, some people you'd recognize, some people not having drinks, being merry, having a few too many. Now that is a little bit different. That's kind of the presentation you're looking for. You know, you the Fox Patriot Awards in Florida, you had people having drinks and standing around and whatnot uh, with the show going on and the crowds around them. We are, we're familiar, both of us familiar with this at CPAC. It's kind of fun. It's kind of nice. Like it's something different to watch as a viewer, but when everyone's getting blasted. Yeah, I know. I'm just no fun. I'm a fun sucker. Uh, now, as you know, Curtis specializes in the White House press corps. So we're going to run through some of the trends as we see them. For example, uh, Curtis Fox media reporter Joseph Wolfson reported that in this year, Biden granted only seven one-on-one interviews to journalists. Um, the first one, the s- traditional pre-Super Bowl sit-down with Lester Holt. Um, and then he waited over four months to do an off-camera interview with the AP. And, and then what's funny about this is these are not hardball interviews. Uh, then, uh, uh, and then in September, Scott Pelley... On 60 Minutes saying, oh, you, sir, you solved the rail strike. How does it feel? You know? How did you do it? How did you do it? It's amazing. And then uh, did a few more in October, one with Tapper, one with Jonathan Capehart. None of these can be considered tough. Now, there's other interviews he gave with non-journalists. The most recently, December 19, airing with Drew Barrymore. Yes, did yeah. one with Kimmel. But, you know, th- you know th- th- what's that kind of interview? Apparently, uh, with Drew Barrymore, they dis- Joe discussed being the brunt of his wife's teasing. Oh, how cute. And he doesn't turn the lights off. <laughs> he likes poems. This is what, uh, this is very much what happened with the Obamas. It's let's, let's talk cute. Uh, so, yeah, I think the question I always have is why would you be afraid of doing interviews when... Uh, the interviews are so supportive. I guess there's that moment you'll remember in the Jake Tapper interview where he dropped his note cards and Tapper helpfully picked them up and handed that them back. That was embarrassing. That was so bad. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Here, Mr. President. Uh, then there's the press conferences. The American Presidency Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara, has an archive of pre- the number of press conferences. So in 2022... President Biden had five solo press conferences and six joint press conferences. Those are usually known. They're with foreign leaders, and they're short. They're known as a two and two, as in each leader gets two questions. Curtis, what's interesting here is the annual average of press conferences of recent presidents. I mean, it has gone down. Uh, It was much higher before television. Mm -hmm. And as television has gotten more and more uh, central, the number of press conferences goes down. But in the modern era, this is the average annual press conferences, both the solos and the joint press conferences. Clinton, 24. George W. Bush, 26. Obama, 20. Trump, 22. And then we get to Joe Biden, his average in the first two years, 10.4. So By half, more than half. Yeah, I mean, and this is with most reporters are fairly tame with him, but... I guess you were suggesting to me there are times he gets a little snippy. Right, and I think that's part of the issue. When we see this, we'll, we'll talk about this with Jen Psaki and KJP, particularly with KJP. She has the same problem that Joe Biden does, 
A reporter asks a basic question, and then they give a stupid answer. <laughs> and then the reporter's like, wait a second. Did you mean blank? And then they snap at them. And, and so from there, it's like they're trying to help you along, Joe. They're your friends. They helped put you in office. Mm-hmm. You know, they just want to know why X hasn't passed yet. Don't lose their mind. They want it to happen, too. Yeah. You know, and whether you want to say it's a short temper, or the dementia, whatever you want to say. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just a weird kind of issue. Um, and, and in his marathon news conference, you know, the, the one that most came to mind was January 19th, where, you know, there were a number of infamous parts. That was the one where uh, Allison Harris, Mrs. Garrett Hake, from News Nation asked him, do you still believe the upcoming election will be fairly conducted and its results will be legitimate? And that was the one where he said, well, it it all depends. And that triggered a long news cycle where people were saying, you know, buying questions, results of the election, but it was Mm -hmm. footnoted. And this became a theme that we saw in the media writ large in 2022, which is, oh, Democrats can question election results. Right. Because we're not going to storm the Capitol. If we don't storm the Capitol and talk about, like, Venezuelans controlling voting machines, <laughs> we can say whatever we want. You know, they well, they will still go around and say questioning results is dangerous for democracy. They themselves will question election results or cast doubt on legitimacy of them and just say, well, we're not committing violence, so. Yeah, that was the classic re- retort. And obviously, yes, the Republicans would always want to say, may we direct you back to 2000? And 2004 and 2016, where you guys all got up and objected on the floor of the House. Right. So we have to go back to remember, folks, 1988 was the last Republican win that Democrats collectively viewed as legitimate. Well, I know that was before you were born, Curtis, but it, that wasn't close. <laughs> right. Michael Dukakis did not come in close. It was closer to McGovern. Right. Although, you know, Trump thinks we got to look at Texas in 2020. So, you know, that's kind of or DeSantis' win. So there's that. But no, I mean, the example of tough moments here, Philip Wegman, you know, really questioned him, uh, pointing out that you were asked uh, whether or not you believed we would have free and fair election 22. If some state legislatures reformed voting procedures, you said it depends. Do you think that they would be illegitimate? Uh, And then he also called him out for this return to civility. Uh, uh, I know that you dispute the characterization that you called folks who would oppose these voting bills being as being Bull Connor or George Wallace, but you've said they would be in the same camp. Um, And so he had an interesting kind of back and forth with him as part of this. Uh, Let's take a listen to that. You campaigned and and you ran on a return to civility. And I know that you dispute the characterization that you called folks who would oppose those voting bills um, as being Bull Connor or George Wallace, but you said that they would be sort of in the the same camp. No, Uh, I didn't say that. Look what I said. Go back and read what I said and tell me if you think I called anyone who voted on the side of the position taken by Bull Connor that they were Bull Connor. And that is an interesting reading of English. You, you, I assume you got in the, in the journals because you like to write. So did you expect that that would work with Senators Manchin or, or Cinema? 
Um, no, here's argument. the thing. There's certain things that are so consequential. So that was kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah. He, what? English? This you has like to write? Like, what? This has to be why Ron Klain's like, we're not putting him out there. Because we have no idea when he's going to snap at somebody and suggest that somehow reporters are fake news. Who but, is, that, and what was funny about that was, I think two or three reporters later, James Rosen of Newsmax pointed out that the morning consult found in January that 49% of registered voters disagreed with the statement, Joe Biden is mentally fit. <laughs> with not even a strong majority of Democrats agreeing with that. And asking him, why do you suppose such large segments of the American electorate have come to harbor such profound concerns about your cognitive fitness? Biden, quote, I have no idea. Yeah. Uh, well, I think you just proved it a few moments ago uh, with Wegman where you didn't really know what you're doing. You got uh, all snappy there, Grandpa. Yeah, exactly. And, and in that same briefing earlier, you had Peter Ducey just say that, uh, you know, why are you dragging this country to the left? And they went at it a little bit, too. So that and the fact that he was only supposed to call on a few reporters and reporting has come out since then that, yes, Jen Psaki, Jill Biden, Ron Klain were just pulling their hair out. <laughs> because, you like you like that picture? I mean, because, again, these, this is this is a Democrat president in front of reporters who overwhelmingly voted Democrat in 2020. Now, you have a piece on Newsbusters called Fireworks by the Dozen with the top briefing room moments of 2022. I want to sort of break these down into the late Jen Psaki era and then the cringe Jean-Pierre era. <laughs> right, exactly. So the the late moments of Jen Psaki's tenure were dominated by, is Russia going to invade Ukraine? And so that was one of the big questions there. And in my countdown, uh, we have from February 11th, Jackie Heinrich. I've adopted Jackie time along with Deucey time <laughs> as well. And that catches on. I mean, she retweets my stuff. So, I mean, she's okay with it then. Um, she pointed out to Jake Sullivan and Jen Psaki, why should you just threaten uh, Russia with sanctions instead of just go ahead and level them? It's not really effective to tell a country, well, if you invade, we will do this to you. Why doesn't, don't you? doesn't stop the invasion. It, it doesn't stop the invasion. And it didn't stop the invasion. And so she said, you're waiting for people to die before implementing them. And that was a relatively spicy point. Um, another one was Peter Ducey going around and around with Jen Psaki over the Putin price hike. You know, and it was just a simple fact-checking that... As I wrote in the piece, you know, the rising gas prices by March were the Putin price hike. But before that, it was supply chain issues. Before that, it was life restarting after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And and Saki, to her credit, very much sticks to her talking points. She tries different she'd try different ways to restate them. She would say something different. She would try to move on. Whereas with Corrine, Corringe, you know, she'll get an immigration question. She'll just say political stunts, political stunts, political stunts over and over again. You're mm. like, oh, my gosh. I want to <laughs> you're not it. good at this. I, you're not good at this. You know, whereas, you know, Saki, at the very end of her tenure, she had a moment with Ducey where he asked her, should children be learning sex ed in elementary school? Oh. And what do you think about men, uh, biological men playing in women's sports? Hmm. And of course, 
Saki turned it around and said this is about protecting the dignity and identity of all Americans and that people who oppose this are propagating misinformed and hateful policies. You know, this is a real kind of you don't have to like it, but that's the kind of spice and off the cuff, you know, response, you know, fire that. We didn't really see with Corrine Jean-Pierre. You know, as an observer, it was a much more uh, interesting product. Yeah. Uh, because reporters may not have liked the answer, but you got something from her on the podium, maybe off the cuff. Uh, whereas with Corrine, it's a statement from a binder or I don't know. Yeah. And as we know, they made fun of Kaylee McEnany's binder. She wasn't half as reliant on the binder as Corrine. The yes. the other thing, obviously, is you you always marvel at people saying that somehow it's misinformed to say we don't want biological dudes in women's sports. You know, where's the mis the misinformation is calling them a woman, right? We saw that with Ben Collins repeatedly this year on NBC and MSNBC. Now Saki's colleague actually saying, you know, oh, there's just hate against trans kids, hate against trans kids. These kids are going to commit suicide. Like, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it is the way they do it. So uh, there are moments, as you note, where the White House reporters get a little feisty. But as we always state, just because they got feisty in the briefing room doesn't mean it made the newscast. But we have this on the baby formula. I think the Democrat reporters got so upset at how mishandled the baby formula was, and they knew that could be politically damaging, that they were like, get it straight. Right, because with the baby formula, this isn't... I mean, this is like gas, not just about gas prices, because gas prices, again, is an issue that affects all Americans, regardless of how much you follow the news. Baby formula affects the most vulnerable among us next to the unborn. Well, and they think they think they think the young female voters are their base. And so, yes, if young female liberals are not able to buy formula for their child at the grocery store, not good. Yeah. And there were some serious questions. You know, there was a major recall and some sanitation concerns at one of the major Abbott plants, I believe in Michigan, you know, in the late winter, early spring, that there were murmurs about this. The FDA was like, you got to shut this plant down or you got to close it temporarily for cleaning or something. And there started to be murmurs about that. The White House may brief Biden in March or April. But here we were in the beginning of June and we had reached you know, March 2020 levels in the baby formula aisle. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where they were frustrated with them, where it was the fight where everybody got feisty with with Kareen was the notion that, why are we telling Biden so late? Who's president? Right, and that was part of the question here. I mean, let's play some of this because this showed an, a reporter not named Peter Ducey going hard at Kareen Jean-Pierre, and that was CBS's Ed O'Keefe. So you, you did February 17th was the recall. February 18th, FDA issued uh, instructions to states. Let's let's can we continue that through April? When did somebody call the White House to say this is a problem? You guys may need to get involved. So I could say that um, again, the recall happened on the day, day one of the recall. We took action as a whole of government approach, right? It was someone called here at the White House to say, 
this could be an issue that requires presidential I, involvement. So I don't have the timeline on that. I, all I can tell you as a whole of government approach, we have been working on this since the recall in February. The independent regulatory agency, the FDA, the one that questions have been referred to in the past is now being embraced as whole of government. Let's point that out here. The other thing, why wasn't Abbott invited today? This whole of Did government you approach. You're doing this now on June 1. If he knew no, about this we in have April. Been do no, no, no. We have been doing this a whole of government approach since since the recall. Yeah, that is what, and it's not, but it's, until last month. because That's we had to make sure, for. we had to make sure and really look into what would work. So as you can tell there, Tim, he's not asking loaded questions. He's just simply asking, when did you tell the president about this? When did you, as a White House staff in the West Wing or a domestic policy council, decide that this is a problem, and what were you going to do about it? it and when Karine says we took action in a whole-of-government approach, you're like, that's not satisfactory. It reminds me a little bit. This is this is a different era and a different question. But, you know, Britt Hume was attacked for asking Bill Clinton about how they came about choosing Ruth Bader Ginsburg because there had been suggestions at that time, I think, that they were going to go for Stephen Breyer. And there was sort of a zig and a zag, and boom, they did Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And... Hume was basically trying to ask a really factual question, which was, how did we get here? And Clinton got all upset at him for asking about process. Did you just hear her speak? And you're over there fussing about process. And, he, you know, Britt Hume was attacked for Sam Donaldsonism. Yeah. And the next day on June 2nd, Ed O'Keefe did the same thing because... He pointed out that and Kelly O'Donnell and NBC did this as well, which is the reason this kind of thing is important. It's for the American people and reporters to understand who makes decisions when, because inevitably there's going to be other crises that a White House has to deal with. And it's informative for the American public that within the first couple crises, how are things handled? Who tells the president what? When do they decide to tell the president something is bad? Philip Wegman asked it that on one of those days as well. Uh, how long do you wait or what does it take for a problem to rise to the level of telling the president? And she just couldn't answer the question. She kept talking about whole of government approach or we are taking action. Her favorite one, she uses this for all kinds of things. We are doing the work, the work <laughs> that needs to be done. Okay, Kamala Harris. Like what? <laughs> yeah, that, that, is, that, is, that is very... But as you pointed out in the lead-in, this stuff did not make it on the newscast because, you know, during the Trump years, we saw Paula Reed. Peter Alexander, Jim Acosta, yep. they would get their clips run on their shows yep. when they would be on to show that, you know, CBS News, you know, push press the White House on this today. And you're like, and then they would play a condensed version of the exchanges with this. Nothing. It, it's nothing, you know. You would probably get, I'm just guessing now, I'm not seeing this actually happen, but what our joke guess would be is that you'd get to the network news that night and there would be an eight-second clip of, we're doing the work. Yeah, yeah, that's probably <laughs> what it is, yeah. Uh, yes, a, a, a soundbite that the reporters themselves in the room said was ineffective, but we're going to play it anyway, <laughs> making it seem like they're totally on this, you guys. It's just, a, again, it, it morphs into, you know, this is real pressure because they're in the press the press corps are pointing out that, yes, Abbott had its problems, and there's also a White House role as well. Whereas when you go to the newscasts, a lot of the time under a Democrat president, it's the 
the corporation or the town or the state that is the problem Mm -hmm. that caused this crisis. It's just a thing that is happening, as I I was saying earlier on Newsmax today, that it just happens. Barack Obama, it was the same way with with these presidents where crises— scandals just come about and they're sort of powerless we see this with southwest airlines pete boot edge edge it's it's really irked both of us that you know he's just kind of there and and insists oh i'm doing great job well we had gas prices and we had the supply chain issue all of these things have happened under his watch and he's supposed to be this democratic party wonderkin and the media just run if they do mention him it's just the sound bites of him saying you know we're on this we will hold people to account yeah i don't think that most people think that the secretary of transportation is an all-powerful position. It's just the way that he gets uh, on the network news and the questions are all, oh, public authority, what should we expect next? And not really tough questions. I mean, we did get one from from Blaine Alexander yes. where she actually asked, what role did you guys have in bungling this, which it, I, I, I was a little stunned by. Now, you had here... We've talked about Putin's price hike, and we know that Ducey's battle with Kareen on inflation. I'm going to jump ahead to Brett Kavanaugh. Um, and this was a story they really didn't want to do. I'm going to remind people, NPR never did a story on the assassination attempt on Brett Kavanaugh, which shows you how awful NPR can be. Uh, this was one Ducey was battling Jean-Pierre about hounding Kavanaugh in public. Uh, and she said it was part of democracy. Yeah. No, what makes Peter Ducey really effective is not just so that he can get the soundbite included on TV, which, not just for a selfish interest, it's good for the viewer to see how a question is set up so that you can then judge the person's response. So he asked, does the president think it's appropriate for abortion rights protesters to intimidate Supreme Court justices when they are out to eat, like Brett Kavanaugh, who had to sneak out of a steakhouse last night? Okay. Corrine Jean-Pierre insisted the White House was against, quote, violence and intimidation. But then, you know, pointed out, like, in a restaurant. Yeah, and Corrine said, if it's outside the restaurant, if it's a restaurant, is peaceful for sure. Um... He's like, and so then Ducey said, to be clear, so these justices, just because they're protests, these protesters don't agree with the opinion they've signed on to, have no right to protest what, uh, have no right to privacy is what you're saying. So he's asking, so do these justices have no right to privacy? And that's when Kareen said, people have the right to protest. This is what a democracy is. Well, I think the problem with that is, I think we can all look at this as uh, if we were in their shoes. Now, let's say... Elena Kagan goes out to eat and people are screaming at her from the street. Uh, do they have a right to protest? They do have a right to protest. I think the question is, can you call that peaceful? Well, it's nonviolent, but it can be seen as threatening. And I think in the whole spectrum here of the way that the conservative justices had people screaming outside their homes... And, it, yeah, Jen Psaki and the whole crew basically suggested, hey, that's just democracy, even though it's supposedly it's against the law for large mobs to stand outside somebody's house and intimidate them, judges. It's peaceful. It's peaceful. It's just the narrative that we saw, which, you know, kind of depends on what your definition of peaceful is. Right. Well, and it's peaceful until there's an assassination attempt. 
Right. It's <laughs> it's just like with Democrats. You can question an election results as long as it's not violent. You can you can have peaceful protests. Protests are peaceful so long as you don't try to kill anybody. But then when it comes down to the psychological, you know, are people able to live in their homes, you know, and this became an issue locally for us where, you know, I think in Virginia and Maryland, there are ordinances really against like large public gatherings and demonstrations in residential areas and the local authorities there chose really not to enforce it. Not surprisingly in Fairfax County, of course, they, the Soros prosecutor, they just, right. They just were there just kind of chilling leaning up against their cruisers, just watching people. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's not, it doesn't only feel threatening to the judge's family, but you have to think the neighbors aren't exactly happy with it either. Let's jump ahead to Afghanistan. You you make this point, and we do remark about this, is that a lot of times, John pierre she has to bring in uh, guest spokesmen, especially John Kirby. Uh, because he's way better at this than she is. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, a lot of times, you know, we you almost wanted to start counting how many solo briefings she did and how many joint briefings she did, because it was quite common. At certain stretches, it was maybe, you know, one out of every three or four would be solo. All the rest would have a guest at some point, whether it's Kirby, you know, or Jake Sullivan or, you know, some IT person at the White House talking about hacks or a cabinet secretary. You know, and this is not uncommon. We should make that clear. Multiple presidents have done this, but it just seems to be with Corrine when the narrative became clear to people on both sides that she might not be up to snuff. You started seeing more and more of these. Yeah, I think there's obviously were more of these with her than there were with Saki. I mean, you're exactly right. I remember, you know, Condoleezza Rice or whatever coming in in the Bush era. But, you know, honestly, Curtis, usually the reporters weren't that wild about it because you're not going to ask Condi Rice about 80% of the stuff in the news. Right. And that's the accusation that we saw in the Trump years, which was, you know, something maybe going on at the border. So they're going to have John Kelly on when he was there or, you know, some of these people, uh, Nielsen afterward, right. Chad Wolf, you know, uh, the people that got the people that got harassed at restaurants. Right. Right. You might have some or just just throwing it out there. Just all kinds of people. Uh, Wilbur Ross with gas prices or some or jobs report or something. Talking about the commerce, you know, commerce secretary Wilbur Ross. Um, and then the accusation would be you'd have Acosta or whomever go on or Karam or April Ryan go on CNN afterward to Brooke Baldwin and be like, there wasn't a lot of time to talk to Sarah. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a lot of time to talk to Sarah Sanders about the scandal of the day, you know, the Russia, Russia, Russia nonsense that we didn't get to talk about. So we all understand kind of how this works. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely a crutch that KJP employed. And so I talk about as part of that, you know, Ducey had a moment where this was after the drone strike that took out. Ayman al-Zawahiri, mm-hmm. who is Osama bin Laden's right-hand man. If you read the 9-11 Commission Report, there's a whole section on him, kind of where he came from. I think he was more of a e- guy from Egypt, whereas bin Laden was from Saudi Arabia. Well, but we all know, according to the Washington Post, he was an austere religious leader or something. Or that was Baghdadi. Yeah, yeah Baghdadi, the other I'm guy. joking. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Ducey, you know, came out and said, yes, it wasn't a proof that, quote, you guys gave a whole country to a bunch of people that were on the FBI's most wanted list. Um, 
and wasn't it proof that the Taliban was harboring the number one terrorist uh, who was able to, quote, sit on a balcony in a ritzy part of Kabul? Yeah, that's 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 a hardball. And and he just said, you know, he really just said that's not true. He didn't really take a he took offense to that. He disagreed with the premise. We never said it would fall in the hands of terrorists. Like we were, you know, something, something over the horizon. You're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, sure. You had the, uh, uh, this one uh, kind of petered out, the student loan bailout. I mean, I, I it's kind of funny the way that uh, they all presented this as something that was definitely going to happen. And then after the election, oops, surprise, it was not constitutional and it didn't happen yeah i mean or it's been on hold for a while but right. you know it was very convenient you know this w- this was done in august september so just in time for some of the states where early voting was going and red voter registration uh, college campuses just as colleges reconvened for the new semester once again the democrats see this as a uh, you know one of their voting audiences so there's that bribe of paying off right. your student loans. Right. And, and that became a huge issue because you partnered that with abortion and, you know, uh, boogeyman threats to democracy or whatever, sure. or they want your trans friend to die. So it kind of became this potent cocktail for young voters. Uh, and there's also the failure of the right to organize, but that's another podcast for another day. <laughs> uh, my no. thoughts on that. But like, yes, uh, Jackie Heinrich pointed out that, you guys are saying this is legal because of the Heroes Act, but the Heroes Act was like money for first responders after 9/11. And you're saying that Heroes Act can be like money deployed in case of a crisis, but you guys are in court right now trying to get rid of Title 42 because you say the pandemic's over with. Yeah, and it's so Wait well, a second. Yeah, I mean this is this is the sort of nitpicking that reporters are, are supposed to do, which is where are you getting the money? For this massive bailout. And you have even a CBS reporter was on that. Yeah. How is it? How Christina Ruffini, how can you guarantee that it's going to be paid for, even if you're defining paid for in a way that some of us have questions about? Because the issue was, and it still is, how much it's going to cost is dependent upon how many people apply for it. Right. If people don't apply for it, then it costs less. That's kind of just how it works because they set the benchmark at uh, $10,000 and $20,000 if you have 20,000 if you have Pell Grants, 10,000 if you don't. And even Michael Shear, you know, who's usually a doormat for the, for the administration. Oh, you're saying he's in that Jeff Zeleny category of what enchants you yes. about being president? Yes, though not as not like that visor territory with the Washington Post. <laughs> but but you know, he didn't even point saying he, he said he did some research the previous night and was searching for in White House transcripts all the times the president would talk about something being fully paid for and saying he noticed that in talking about the student loans, nobody in the White House was using fully paid for in their rhetoric. Huh, isn't that interesting? Now, this has to be my favorite on your list, and that is... Conservative Twitter was having fun when we everybody was talking about election deniers. And so, of course, people dug up tweets from Corrine Jean-Pierre, I uh, guess, about Stacey Abrams, basically suggesting that the election was stolen from her uh, by Brian Kemp in 2018. And so here came Mr. Ducey with the tweets. Let's play it. Let's play it. But just in trying to understand the new attention on the MAGA Republicans, you tweeted... In 2016, oh, I knew this Trump was coming. Stolen yeah. election. You I was waiting, Peter, when you were going to ask me that question. Well, here <laughs> we go. You tweeted Trump stole an election. You tweeted Brian Kemp stole an election. If denying election results yeah. is extreme now, yeah. 
So let's bad. let's be really clear that that comparison that you made is just ridiculous. I have oh, been yeah, I have ridiculous. been well. You're asking me you're asking me a question. Yes. Let me answer it. And you said it was ridiculous. I was. I was talking specifically at that time of what was happening with voting rights and the what was in danger of voting rights. That's what I was speaking to at the time. And here's the thing. I have said Governor Kemp won the election in Georgia. I've been clear about that. Uh, I have said President Trump won the election of 2016, and I've been clear about that. What we are talking about right now is, let's not forget what happened on January 6th. Okay, so exactly, this is what we just were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is, as long as I don't storm the Capitol, we can say what we want, you know? And of course, Corrine made this esoteric claim that I was talking about the stakes with voting rights, what was going on with voting rights. Huh? Yeah, they tried to say yeah. that it was suppression. It was, it was, you know, it was a very, very indirect thing. It was not... Um, they weren't failing to certify. They were saying, well, just you suppressed people from turning out. I mean, that again, they had, I believe, in 2018 for the time, a record turnout. In, in, and we, they've made a new record in 2022. I and mean, with the runoff, too. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that the idea that somehow there was massive voter suppression in Georgia was if we had independent fact checkers, maybe they would have checked that. Yeah. Democrats swept in 2020, you know, the Senate races, as we know, they won. Warnock got the most votes in November and in December. Um, we should point out that in 2020, <clears throat> um, might even 2018, not sure, either in 18 or 20, the Democrats picked up a House seat that in one of those cycles. Mm -hmm. So again, and I go back to, I think I said this last time I was on the podcast, with Nick and I, blue states, like Virginia, where we all live, they have voter ID. The Democrats still win. So, I mean, this idea that, you know, having measures such as voter ID crushes the black vote or crushes Democratic-based voters is just absolutely ludicrous. And it's just, you know, splitting hairs for her to say, well, I'm just talking about voter suppression. I'm not really talking about elections being stolen, stolen in the sense that you might be thinking. Well, it seems like the Democrats feel like the the democracy issue worked for them this this year. And so they're already making big talk about trying it, at least maybe in the Democrat controlled Senate to push voting rights again as an issue, as something that can be talked about. Then there was the the abortion issue, obviously the 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 Dobbs case reversing Roe versus Wade in May, and then in September, uh, it, it was seen as a goof that Lindsey Graham suggested a national fifteen week ban. Yeah, I mean, Ducey had this question again, very simple: Does President Biden favor any limits on abortion? The devout Catholic. The devout Catholic update. Yes. And so Kareem goes on to say, we've been very, very clear. We're talking specifically about what Lindsey Graham was going on. Um, but do you see then fact checked her because uh, then she went on to talk about Republicans are calling for a national. They are calling for a national ban. Ooh, except that's not what Lindsey Graham's bill is. It is a nationwide 15 week abortion ban limit. It's not a nationwide ban. And this is where. If you're not tuned in, plugged into the news, you don't do this for a living out like us. You you kind of have, I sometimes say, a real job out there, not in 
the in in the weeds. Well, I object. I feel very much. I have a real working, job. Working but, class. Yeah. Working yeah, I, class people no, out there. No, it's true. You're not in the. You're not able to decipher. Spend a lot of time trying to research this. So when if you're an uninformed voter and you hear Karine Jean Pierre say this. And you lean left, you think that's true. Well, I think that uh, obviously in the time in many states after Roe was reversed, it was a pretty dramatic restriction. Um, and but in this case, yes, a 15 week a ban at 15 weeks. You know, the abortion lobby will always say, oh, you know, 94 percent or whatever yeah. of the abortions happened before that. So is it? Yeah. Ban is really not an effective it's, word. Yeah. So then Ducey and then she said, I'm not going to get in specifics here. And then Ducey said, why aren't you? Why not get in specifics? The Republicans saying we don't want abortions after 15 weeks. Why can't you say how many weeks the president thinks the limit is? So then he went on to talk about Kevin McCarthy and still more ban. So then he kept asking how many more weeks. And then she went on to say Republicans are trying to take away the rights and freedoms of Americans. Well, like, again, it doesn't make any sense. So she tried to move on to Courtney Rosen of Bloomberg government. But then, you know, Ducey, who usually just when it, when she's done or Saki's done, he was he's respectful about things. But on this one, he just completely lost it. Just continually shouting at her. You did not answer my question. <laughs> Well, that that makes it fun too. I mean, it can. There's not a lot of shouting, and and Ducey is no Jim Acosta. I mean, I think we've said that repeatedly. And then finally, in December, uh, after the swap for Brittany Griner, uh, you know, they Ducey asked the obvious question, and that is, why did Russia get such a better deal? Yeah, I mean, that's the one where, again, very simple question, but very effective. A lot of Peter Ducey's tenure in the White House is a great example for other reporters to really work on your question instead of Michael Shear. I condensed his question about student loans into just a couple sentences, a couple seconds. That went on for minutes. Yeah. It was like paragraph, paragraph, paragraph. I like to hear myself talk. And you're like, dude, stop. You know, you have that AP reporters sometimes will do that at the top of the briefing. And you're like, oh, my gosh. See, but here's the thing, Curtis, at least when I was in the White House press corps in 2001 and 2002, Fleischer ran that pretty tight. It was a 45 minute briefing. So if somebody filibusters for three minutes, the guys in the back row is going to be like, shut up and ask your question. And it's very clear after the first couple like sentence or two where the question's going. Like even the press secretary probably is like, OK, here's what they're asking me. And this is probably where it's going to end with a question mark. And they're ready to say something. Then they keep going. <laughs> so then so then Ducey, you know, goes on to, you know, ask. They gave up a professional athlete. We gave up a prof uh, prolific arms dealer who was convicted of trying to kill Americans who was called the merchant of death. And all Kareen had to say was, this professional athlete is an American citizen. So let's not forget that. Well, he's like, well, Paul Whelan is an American citizen. Um, and all she had to say was, oh, they view the situation very differently. We should be happy for Brittany Griner. And, she's, and as a lot of reporters have said, like, that's not what we're talking about here. That's not the issue. What precedent does this send? Right. To authoritarian governments, not just Putin, that they can grab American citizens and they get to name their price. Um, and you get arms dealers that are able to just uh, grab people off the street. And I should just add also in that one, uh, because Kareen has repeatedly denied, you know, declined to comment on anything regarding the Twitter files. Uh, Ducey wanted to know, really, who's telling you that that's off limits? Who's telling you that you can't say anything? Yeah. 
I've already had this conversation with your colleague, I believe, yesterday. I've addressed this multiple times, which means she's not going to say anything. Right. Because as we've seen with the Twitter files, at the very least in early parts, there was a hand-in-glove relationship between the Biden administration and Twitter where their requests for tweets to be taken down were met with aye, aye captain. Yeah. Whereas I mean, with Trump, it was ghosting. Well, they would say, yes, we had communications with Trump. But I think everybody knows... When we talk about the Twitter files, there are several really important threads. Um, obviously, COVID is one. But I think to us, as politicos, the the complete attempt to suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story, which is really made more embarrassing here in 2022, because the New York Times and the Washington Post and now CBS News all acknowledge the laptop was a real thing. So that should make the suppression of the New York Post look way worse. And for 2023, to look ahead to 2023, we can remember this now that when Jim Comer and Jim Jordan have uh, hearings in the Judiciary Committee and the Oversight Committee, and these networks want to ignore or dismiss the laptop as conspiracy theories, we can be like... Why don't you look at the New York Times and the Washington Post? Yes, yes. Now, we must point out before we close that, uh, yes, when the New York Times did it, they put it on A20. (laughs) And the Washington Post, I mean, did one huge story... And then kind of moved on. But but nevertheless, they have brought their own swagger to the idea that this was real. And it's all the same sort of thing. Oh, we commissioned an independent review, just like, you know, the New York Post and the Daily Caller and the Washington Examiner and others did. It's just kind of the same playbook. We found an independent person. We had them look at it. We'll be like, this would be impossible to fake. Oh, and I forgot to mention. So CBS did their Catherine Herridge piece on uh, on CBS Mornings. And then yes. not on CBS evenings. Yes. And of course, <laughs> afterward, like to Copel and the co were like, oh, oh, oh Whoa, had no idea. Oh, oh. I've been ignoring that for a year and a half. Oh. All right. So as we head into 2023, some of us have more exciting years planned than others. We should tell you that our own Curtis Houck popped the question. Yes. A week ago. Yes. Uh, I thought, I, I mean, I had planned this day to, for a couple of weeks because uh, I had some backup plan, d- original dates that I wanted to do it and other things. It didn't work. Um, if you recall, a week ago, the 23rd was, it was, it was cold. It was cold. It was like five degrees, negative 15 wind chill. But for some reason, I did it anyway. But she she's, did it she's outside. It. She's really worth it. Outside on a gazebo. I blindfolded her and I got this like comforter and walked her out to a gazebo. Just us. Uh, no parents. Um, she's not on social media like I am or any TV or anything. So, so there's um, no video tweet. Yeah, no video <laughs> tweet. There's no Instagram story about that. Um, no, it was really special. I forgot like my gloves or earmuffs or something getting out of the car. And after I got her out of the car, because I kept her blindfolded, I said, stay right there. I went back to the car and then I kept walking straight like on this path to where this little pond is to a gazebo. And then she's like, where are you going? Did you forget me? And I'm like, oh, yes. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and she right here, she'd tell you that's her favorite part. Uh, so then we had a very nice dinner afterward. Uh, I gave her my great grandmother's ring. Uh, that's nice. B wrestler, uh, Beatrice wrestler's ring. Um, and then we had a private dinner. Greenfield Inn, phenomenal restaurant in Lancaster, among many fine dining establishments. So since then, it's been a whirlwind. Like we have visited four. I was at five by accident. A long story there. But then at four, uh, then we have five coming up this weekend. 
and then we hopefully have to decide at some point. It's well great. now, you, but the the nice part there is yes, you have a gazebo now. You can maybe you can take your kids one day and say this is where the magic happened. Yes, exactly. It's it's exciting and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It just was um, you know something I'd been ready for. I originally wanted to propose in October, but some things were. Uh, just wasn't able to swing it. Um, well, she so had to, She had to be delighted. Oh, she was. She was totally surprised. Even though I blindfolded her, I drove to my parents' house saying we were gonna have dinner. Yeah. And then was I pulled up in front of the house and was like, "We're not actually having dinner here." And I threw it in drive and said, "Put this blindfold on." <laughs> she, even then, she didn't know. She didn't think I was proposing. She thought I was just taking her somewhere to fancy. Like a tea. surprise, yeah. Um, even walking her out to the gazebo, she was just like, "Okay, we're going out somewhere in the cold to walk." And even then, she didn't know it. So, well, that was good very thing exciting. she trusts you. Otherwise, she'd be like, "Is this a hit?" <laughs> yeah, this is it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we're we're very excited. Um, it's gonna be great. Um. You know, we'll hope to get married back in Pennsylvania. She's also from Pennsylvania, but we met online down here. So, uh, well, it's exciting. Yes. It's been a couple years, but it's yeah, two years, two years. So I think that's a nice, sweet spot, especially with COVID. Uh, yeah. You know, there was a spot after our second date where I didn't, we didn't see each other for like five or six weeks because two of her housemates got COVID, and then her parents got a place in one of the Carolinas and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and we still picked right up after that, which is nice. So thank goodness for technology. Yeah. So, uh, we wish you all the happiest yes. of new years. Well, hopefully we'll have a little more fun in terms of, we'll be documenting for you how the, yes, how the Re- house Republican investigations are now all terrible ideas. Whether s- the news is back at CNN. Mm. Uh, don't hold out much hope for we'll that. See, and then by this time next year, we'll find out, can Don Lemon go for the three Pete? In terms of quote of the year. Well, I was going to say, I'm just hoping that he actually makes it through the night without sipping out of a flask, you know, and the way he's such a rebel in there. Uh, He may sound drunk anyway. If you want to find out what happens, if there's anything crazy going on, you can come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening.